Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast with host Patrick Donahoe, author of the best-selling personal finance book, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, and one of the nation's most influential financial advisors. The Wealth Standard's focus this season is investing. 2020 opened with markets and asset prices at all-time highs, but many of us experience more financial uncertainty now than we did a decade ago. Although there are more choices and opportunities than ever before, the risk-to-reward ratio teeters on a global fulcrum, contributing to the roller coaster of emotions surrounding financial well-being. It seems like everyone is walking on eggshells. This season, we'll cover topics revolving around investment theory and strategy, atypical investments versus conventional investments, and the role of investing within personal wealth strategies. The Wealth Standard Podcast is committed to inspiring you to be more financially free. There is no better time to gain clarity about your wealth strategy, your investments, and your financial future than now. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. I just wanted to start off by saying how grateful I am for a platform such as this to be able to express myself, express my thoughts. And you know, I make this statement because I know that this opportunity is not available everywhere. And for whatever reason, just felt really grateful this week. And also, I extend that gratitude to you and in hopes that there's some practical value you're finding in this show. So this week, I had, you know, in a sense, a kind of a roller coaster of emotions. There was a, an event that I attended, and I'd like to use those experiences as a way to set some context for the interview with Connor Boyack. You know, these experiences led to, I guess, a, an amplification of my intrigue and drive to understand Connor's, I would say, core motivations and core drive, and, and also what he's been able to discover in getting his ideas across to people in two very challenging arenas. Number one, with the political arena, Connor is the president of Libertas, which is a nonprofit think tank that creates legislation. It lobbies on Capitol Hill here in Utah, and it's extended now to dozens of states where they are using some of the legislation that Libertas creates and has been gaining traction. And it's it's so impressive. But Connor's also been able to sell millions of books in a space that is very challenging, which is the free market philosophy, civil liberty philosophy, economics philosophy. And he's been by far, in my opinion, one of the most successful in influencing those that may seem at first, which is most adults, resistant to new ideas. And so this intrigue really led me to want to understand Connor's psychology because I believe that there are really two forms of psychology that prevent us from getting to the next level, from gaining what we believe we are capable of, or even what we don't believe what we're capable of, but we are, it's the psychology of ourselves, is understanding our own psychology, those limitations that hold us back. And then it's the understanding of others' psychology of whom we do business with. And this extends to investments because investments, in essence, are a business. So understanding 
I would say how to influence people, especially ourselves and then extending out to others is really important because these days there is a lot of societal influence. There are ideas that are being communicated that are not thought through. They are taken at face value and associated with the person speaking them and their positioning, their title, their degree of influence already acquired. At the same time, when beliefs and ideas are understood without question, without analysis, it can get very dangerous. And so with that being said, Connor is an incredible man, father. He's the president of Libertas Institute. He's the author of over a dozen books, including the Tuttle Twins series. I did the interview at Connor's office. I was actually at an event and it was near his office here in Utah. So a little bit different setting on the video and audio quality as well. It was actually pretty good, but the video quality, not so much. Also, it was St. Patrick's Day. So I was wearing green and I had my clover hat on. So I pardon the way in which I was dressed. But I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. Connor's an amazing man. Please visit his website, libertas.org and the tuttletwins.com. And he'll mention some of those resources on the podcast. And you can always go to the show notes to get those details if you're listening and are in a place you can't write them down. Okay, without further delay, here's my interview with Connor Boyack. Taking a break from the show, I want you to know about a course I created for successful real estate investors that I'm making available to my podcast audience for free. You guys know that stupid business and real estate investment decisions almost cost me everything in 2009 and 2010. And since then, it's been my mission to teach you listeners the invaluable lessons I learned during this strenuous time so you don't have to experience those same lessons. Perpetual Wealth Real Estate is an online course that teaches you a financial strategy I use personally with all of my real estate investments to ensure a profitable transaction and maximize the overall return. The Perpetual Wealth Real Estate course is my gift to you. Register today for free at thewealthstandard.com forward slash ROI. Again, the URL is thewealthstandard.com forward slash ROI, Romeo Oscar Indigo. Hey everyone, this is Patrick. I'm here in the Libertas studios. Welcome. Welcome. I usually wear headphones. This is kind of strange, but no, it happened to be I was out at an event and I was near Connor's office. And so instead of doing the typical Zoom or Connor in my office for the interview, I'm here. We're all the magic. This happens. is where the sausage is ground behind the scenes. Look how glorious. It's a I've, table. I haven't been to the new office. Well, welcome. Glad you could come. You apparently moved during COVID. Yeah, well, it was about a year ago and uh, we've been growing and, and it's awkward because when we you know, we've been having success. I've been hiring more people. And then I custom kind of built this office for our needs. And I'm thinking, this will be great. You know, three, four, five years. And then now one year busted. in, we're like, oh, we're you know, packing people in the corner trying to find where to put them. Well, there's going to be lots of office space coming. That's coming. very available very soon. true, including your own. <laughs> yeah, seriously. There's. <laughs> oh, well, we can chit chat, but let's get down to let's do it. brass tacks. All right. Connor, I remember seeing you at Freedom Fest. I think it was 2011 or 2012, and you were doing a debate, <laughs> and I was like, man, he's getting pummeled. <laughs> but the guy that you were debating, I don't know if you remember that. I do. He was a kind of a jackass, yeah. and you were so logical and calm and stoic about the way you responded and how you backed up claims <laughs> that I was like, that guy's going somewhere. That's been a while. 
That was a while ago. And look at you now. Yeah, that was actually, that was the year that I started Libertas. Actually, actually, on paper, 2011, I filed the articles and we didn't really fully launch for about a year. But yeah, it's been about that long. Well, a lot has transpired since then. We've obviously done a couple of interviews. What I wanted to get into, because we've talked about what Libertas is doing, and I want to step back and I want to identify some of the drive behind that, what's creating the momentum. And then I want to speak to kind of where society is right now with the way in which decisions are being made with the social narratives and how they're changing Okay, and your perspective oh, on yeah. that. Because, and the reason why I bring up Freedom Fest is because it was a divisive environment in which you were able to, I'm not sure if that's just natural to you or if it's something you learned how to do over time, but you approached this situation in a respectful, logical way and you won I would say the respect, I mean, one of my respect, I'm not sure about the rest of the audience, but it seemed that way given my memory. So that's where I wanted to start is, you know, where, you know, there's a cool saying about how wisdom begets stoicism, right? Stoicism doesn't beget wisdom. Where would you associate your knowledge and subsequently the wisdom that you've gained and how that allows you to be inspired by something that comes across oftentimes as divisive, but do it in a way that makes a big impact on people's mind being able to ask questions mm. and want to pursue truth? That's a deep question. Let me give some thought how I want to approach that. As I think back to that memory and try and draw from it something that would be relevant day, one thing that I feel like as I reflect on where I was at in life at that time, I feel like one of the challenges a lot of people have today is a lack of confidence in their understanding of you know, the way the world works, what is happening. People are very quick to draw an opinion, often on very little fact or, you know, bias or what they heard on the mainstream, you know, whatever. And, and so people, I think, are quick to assert things, quick to defend arguments online, quick to state their opinion. But if you really peel back that superficial layer, there's a lot of uncertainty and confusion about what they actually believe about what is going on in the world, about the things that they're even debating about. And I feel like for a lot of people that I've interacted, even in the decades since, that leads to kind of like a paralysis of sorts where people don't want to get involved. They don't want to speak out. They don't want to try and make a difference or go to their city council meeting or, you know, write a letter to the editor or whatever it is because of that paralysis of feeling like, they're not an expert. They don't quite understand. They don't have all the facts. And for me, like I just, you asked, and so here's your answer. <laughs> for me, like I at the time and, and in the years prior was such a voracious reader that I felt like all of that education, which was self-taught. I mean, you may remember I used to be a web developer and I just mm-hmm. on the side started reading and learning a lot of this stuff. And I felt like I had accumulated so much knowledge that I had a degree of certainty in my beliefs. And that's not to say I was, you know, and still am correct in all things, but it at least enabled me to have a confidence about the positions that I was taking. Now, it's interesting. It's funny that you say that I had this kind of like, you know, more rational approach and I could kind of back it up because I was going through my own transformation at that time, which was a struggle for me. I had just that same year I was starting Libertas Institute. I got our board chairman, John Pistana, who you know. And at the time, I was kind of a machine gun warrior on Facebook, right? It's like, you're wrong. <laughs> Here's all these facts. <laughs> you know? And you had Connor's conundrum oh, before yeah. that. We had the blog and I would tell everyone why they were wrong. And, uh, you know, it was the comic, maybe you've seen this, of uh, a guy is like hunched over his computer and it's dark 
and the, the computer screen's kind of glowing in front of his face. And wife is opening the door in the back and says, honey, come to bed. And he says, the caption reads, you know, not now, someone's wrong on the internet. <laughs> I'm like, I got to resolve this problem. And that's where I was in life because I was perhaps overconfident in what I believed and felt motivated to go and like correct people's misunderstanding. And it was John, as we started Libertas, who's like, okay, like, hey, we got to moderate this a bit because I'm seeing that you're harming some relationships that could actually do some good if we had a more kind of collaborative approach. And so it's funny to me that you say that about Freedom Fest because I was still going through that phase that I hadn't quite learned it then. It really came the following year. And that gentleman that you referred to, who we were kind of butting heads with, I had been butting heads with for a number of years. And maybe it was that kind of tolerance I had accrued where it's mm -hmm. like, all right, all right, you're going to say what you're going to say. I know not to react to you because you're just trying to get a rise out of me. But why is that relevant to anyone here that we're talking to? I feel like it just boils down to an obligation to seek understanding and really try and get the bottom of things. Peel back those superficial layers about what's being said and try and find that deeper understanding that's going to give us confidence in our beliefs, not an assertive, cocky, like, I'm right, you're wrong. You know, I know all the things and can never learn anything. like nothing like that, but just putting in the effort to learning and not just relying on other people to do the thinking for you and then tell you what to think, which I feel like is what a lot of people do today. They've kind of delegated that responsibility of education and just listen to what they're told and what the experts say. Anyways, that's but they are doing it at a, a subconscious level, right, where the education system has conditioned people to understand facts, not understand truths per se, but understand facts. And I also look at how reward happens in that same space. And it, it even carries to the workplace where people are rewarded for specific things, which reinforces the behavior that got them those things. And mm -hmm. so I look at school and you know, you're graded right based on your individual knowledge and failure and being wrong is bad and right. you're punished for that. And so really that superficial layer that you referred to where a person understands facts, ideas, talking points, hmm. right? It's the layer between that and the actual truth behind it is getting thicker and thicker, it seems. It's interesting because as I remember, what you're saying kind of prompted a memory of mine where I cheated a lot in school <laughs> because, <laughs> sorry to all the teachers out there, because you know, incentives matter. And to your point about the superficial and everything else, like, as I remember school, it was not about what I wanted to know and what it meant for me and what it empowered me to do in my life and my curiosities and what I want. It was, here's the information you have to learn. You have to get a good grade to move on to the next step. And so for me, it was like, okay, if that's the whole goal, I'm going to figure out a shortcut to get there. I mean, I remember distinctly, this is crazy. I remember I had a belt buckle with just a little bit of space in between where I created a, a little tiny paper where I wrote super, super tiny and I slipped it in my belt buckle so that I could kind of, and no one was going to like look down there, right? Like that would be awkward. So I'd kind of like, you know, I think it was like math formulas and stuff like that. Anyways, I cheated because school maybe incentivizes people to pump and dump. In other words, call it cram. cramming. You got to cram, you got to memorize all this stuff you got to take the test and then you dump it because it's like okay i achieved this arbitrary you know test score and so i feel like now today like what type of precedence does that set where people in their lives are accustomed to learning as a task not learning for self-fulfillment and personal achievement and growth and i, I think we kind of see some of the byproduct of that today well and the reason why i bring all that up is because this layer i would say is governed in a sense by the fear of being wrong 
and mm -hmm. the desire to be right. Yeah. Right. Again, it goes to that reinforcement. And the reason why I'm going all over the place here is because, you know, Libertas has its mission. It has its drive and it's made a massive difference, which we'll speak to in a, in a second. But you found an angle into teaching. And I think there's others that have found it as well. Tom Woods, in a sense, Ron Paul, where there's an angle in which you create a narrative or an environment where somebody can discover truth. I think writing is a place you found it in in children's children's books, yeah. and the Tuttle Twins have been wildly successful. I think you said you sold you know one point something books in twenty twenty yeah. alone. What have you discovered about this new, I would say, different dynamic of environment in which people, adults, you know, children obviously is kind of the target audience in a sense, but adults have started to discover truths mm -hmm. about whether it's the economy, whether it's politics, whether it's about monetary policy? Yeah. This is a great question and a fun one for me because I think most of your listeners will know from past interviews, the Tuttle Twins are these children's books that teach the ideas of a free society. And when we started, we were making children's books. We wanted to just teach kids and that's what we did and aimed to do. But we realized that we had this secondary audience that we never planned for and it was the parents who, I mean, probably easily a majority of these parents are they might consider themselves freedom minded or conservative or, you know, they like free markets or whatever, but that's the, the superficial beginning and ending of their understanding of these ideas. And so easily majority of our audience, we get messages from these parents that are like, I learned more than in these books than I remember learning in school. And which I think is an indictment of like the robust, heavily taxpayer funded education that we've all had. And what's interesting, and you may know this, psychological studies kind of bear this out. The best way to learn something is to teach it to someone else, right? And what's interesting here is when you place parents in the mindset of being the kind of educational providers for their children, which a lot of parents outsource and delegate to other people, you know, especially the schools, but to the extent that parents recognize that it's their responsibility to teach their kids about you know, free market ideas, property rights, entrepreneurship, because the schools ain't doing it. And if anything, they're teaching opposite ideas. So we place parents in the role with the Tuttle Twins books to say, hey, look, this is up to you. And we're here to help. And here's these books. Here's these discussion questions. Here's this curriculum. But it places parents in this mindset of realizing that they need to learn too. And the genius on accident, by no means was this like a master planned, you know, whatever, but the accidental genius of the Tuttle Twins was because it's in this simplified, fun format, the barriers are low for parents. It's not like handing them economics in one lesson, right? And like, oh, this was written, you know, 70 years ago. Here you go. Good luck trying to get through it. Like our English is a little dumbed down these days, right? And so no parent is going to, like few parents are going to get through that. But here's this fully illustrated, fun story, creating a shared bonding, reading opportunity between parent and child, which they're naturally seeking anyways. And added bonus, they can learn these amazing ideas. And it's at a level enough where the parent is not putting walls up and being like, I don't want to learn. And so almost sinisterly, we're kind of getting the parents to learn a lot of these ideas as well. And in a way that they value and welcome because they're able to teach their children. And that's their primary value. They might feel like, eh, I got a job. Life is good. I don't need to know these things, but they want their children to know them, especially with the way the world is going and how crazy socialism is. And so when you give those parents those opportunities, they don't realize in many cases that they are learning as well. And it's creating value for them so that, let's say they're at the grocery store with the kids and the child is like, why are there 18 kinds of potato chips? Well, son, you know, remember in the Tuttle Twins book, we talked about division of labor. And, but these, because the parents are learning as well, 
it gives them a common language. I mean, imagine if this was just a school program and we've tried and we do a little bit of school stuff too. Now we're mostly just direct to consumer, direct to family. But initially it was like, hey, let's get into the schools. The challenge there, of course, is that we would reach these students through their teachers and here's your Tuttle Twins book and here's these lessons and activities and whatever. Let's learn about free markets. Well, then they go home and there's no fluency in the home. The siblings don't know, the parents don't know. And so the kid just, you know, pump and dump again. And so by going directly to the family and having parents and children learning together, you get that self-reinforcement where in the informal experiences, like at the grocery store, driving, errand, running errands, you hear some, you know, politician on the radio and they're, you know, and, no, that's central planning, right? Like suddenly there's a common language for the family to reinforce these ideas together. Well, there's something I heard a few months ago. It was a kind of an overview of a book by this guy named David Deutsch. I don't know if you know David Deutsch. Is, I don't. He wrote The Beginning of Infinity, amongst other other books. But he, he made a comment, and it what it did is it, it separated information from knowledge, right? He said that, you know, right now we have equations that say, you know, you can time travel. You can go back in time. But we don't live in an environment where that information works or is relevant. And that's where I look at, again, the information that's taught in schools or information that's read in a book right? It's not real in a person's life unless there's practical application, right? Mm -hmm. Unless it works, unless it benefits them first and foremost. I think we're wired, right? To look after ourselves uh, first. So I want to pivot a little bit because right now, again, we live in an environment, a society, right? Where there still is a lot of divisiveness. Mm -hmm. There is narrative competing against narrative and it's at that superficial level, right? And very few instances, at least the ones that I'm seeing, are where somebody really steps back and questions their beliefs, questions sure. their assumptions, right? Because what's another, you know, is this could be a total tangent, but when a person is wrong on something that they believe now, what it does is it trickles down into all the other things they've ever said and did and puts those in jeopardy, mm. right? So I don't want to go down that tangent, but my point is, right, when you really start to seek truth, you have to confront being wrong. And that's why the environment of a children's book or teaching within the family, right? Or teaching period or explaining something helps it become more real. And then the actual physical circumstances of life where it's practical makes it even more real. Manifests it even more. Yep. And so there's something, you know, we were, you have every year a kind of a forum or a luncheon where you to kind of a debrief of your experience at the Utah legislative session. And, and so this was, I think it was last week. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about some of the wins you're having, some of the difference that you're making, but you made a comment that I still think about, which is, and maybe it wasn't you, maybe it was Catherine, maybe it was someone else, but they said that the intentions of lawmakers are typically genuine, but yet how they understand things is where the flaw is, where sometimes that understanding is narrative, not fact. Yeah. Narrative or speaking point, not truth, right? So this is where I want to get to, how have you been able to take your understanding of the law, your understanding of why laws are uh, created, especially with you know COVID and a slew of measures were taken with very little questioning, right? What have you started to understand about how our society 
working in relation to the laws that are being created? And why is it absolutely necessary that truth is understood? Because we're going down this path where it may not work out the best for Hmm. people in the long run, even though on the surface it may seem like, hey, that's going to be an awesome thing. I feel like the answer to the question doesn't really have to do with the question. And here's what I mean by that. It's much less about the law than it is about incentives and political pressures and appearances. And and what I mean by that is it's not like elected officials get together in a robust debate and they're advancing legal arguments and they're making these amendments and they're debating the merits of the wording and the substance of the law. Far more often, elected officials are responding to narrative. They don't want to appear weak. They want to appear like they're a problem solver. Like they know what they're talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. They want to look smart to their constituents. They want to be able to go back to their district and say, I stood up for you, whatever that means. Hey, farmers, I got you a subsidy, right? Hey, single moms, I got you a you know, tax write-off. Hey, business owners. like They want to be able to go back and say they did something, good or bad. And so they have these incentives in the political system that encourage them to do or to not do certain things. Then they, of course, have pressures. They, on any given issue, might be responding to a number of stakeholders. I'll use an example. When we work on criminal justice policies, we are often, often we'll have like the ACLU and the criminal defense attorneys on the same side. But who's on the other side? It is all the taxpayer-funded law enforcement institutions. It's the police chiefs and the sheriffs and the attorney general and the cities and all these groups that are being paid for by our taxpayer dollars to fund lobbyists to lobby against what we believe is the just and true and moral kind of position. And so a lawmaker is in the middle of that and they're facing these pressures, right? Like a vice from different sides. And it becomes this question of, well, can we pressure them more? Who has more leverage? How do we get them to listen to us than someone else? And so to answer your question, I feel like I have to say that it's far more about tactics and strategy, kind of game theory almost, than it is about the merits of the law, which sucks as an idea person, because I want to get up on my soapbox and say, let's talk about philosophy and political science and economics and and, history and history. And here's (laughs) the facts. Here's the rational, going back to the Freedom Fest thing, right? Here's the rational argument. No, like, honestly, you use that and you looked at by a loon. People are like, okay, you know, Mr. Constitution, you know, and then like, it's like Mike Lee out there waving his pocket constitution and half of Congress is looking. I'm like, okay, whatever. Right. Because these guys are being and I hate it. It's the system, though. It's as it exists. Well, it's so, human psychology. too. It very much is. Right. If you have a marketing background, I feel like you're going to be a far better lobbyist than, you know, someone who understands the law. You don't have to be an attorney to be kind of a lobbyist for liberty, as we like to call ourselves, or a lobbyist for anyone else, you got to understand how humans act and how you can get them to nudge in a certain direction, how you can help an organization. Like we've talked before about how we got medical marijuana done in Utah. And one of the groups that we had to fight was my own church, right? And how difficult that was. And at the end of the day, they wanted to save face. They didn't want to look like they lost. So we had to structure a deal where it looked like It was like a win-win. Like they got something, even though we got like almost everything. But we wanted them to save face because we wanted them to be able to kind of come out together and take down their opposition. Otherwise, again, human behavior and incentives, they would have dug in their heels and felt like, no, we got to like, okay, they're not going to give us a little bit of a win or, you know, compromise. All right, we got to fight to the end. So I feel like it's far more like if, if you know how to play chess well, right? Like you're a good strategist and you know marketing, 
then you can move the needle far more than someone who's you know has a law degree or something like that because especially if you're able to anticipate their moves absolutely because it is that strategic decision like okay we want to pass this law or we want to get this law repealed who's going to fight us what are their talking points going to be how can we rebut those talking points how can we assert the moral high ground from the outset to shift are you familiar with the term the overton window mm-hmm. have you heard about yeah, this yeah. many of your listeners may have not uh, joe overton was a fellow think tanker out in michigan uh, and he created this concept where there's a spectrum of ideas within which there's a narrower range of opportunities that are within the realm of political possibility right in other words if you want to pass a law as long as it's kind of within this box it makes sense if if it's out here it's an outlier it's never going to happen and so to get to that point if this is where justice is or truth or whatever whatever you got to shift the overton window so that the public and the legislature that's you know feeling those pressures so that they feel like that's within the realm of, of political possibility and so it really becomes this question not of like individual policies and their merits it's like when we had to try and decriminalize polygamy me we were in the new yorker the other day they did this big long article about the fight for polygamy freedom or whatever which is weird. like it's truly a utah issue welcome to utah everyone like no one else would have you know an issue like this but utah has a weird history in that regard and so here you go again like that's kind of a weird issue and our lawmakers gonna wanna and so how do you shift up the, the overton window well by reframing the issue, not as like polygamy is freedom, right? Let polygamists, and that's how we started at the beginning, not having the good strategy. But then we realized, wait a minute, there's an opportunity here. And I'll just continue using this example since I brought it up. But the way we achieve success on that issue, not that it matters other than pointing out the example to answer this question, the way we did it is we reframed the debate to say, you know what, by keeping polygamy a felony, you're pushing everyone into the shadows because they don't want their children taken away. They don't want their, you know, licenses, their jobs, their guns. Like, so now they're hiding it because they're going to keep doing it because they want to. And it's part of their religious practice for these small little offshoot groups. So they're going to keep doing it. But now you're going to push them into the shadows where abusers can take advantage of them because those abusers know that they're not going to go to the cops because if they're inviting the government in and calling the cops, they're brother and uncle and you know everyone else is going to get ratted on and maybe turned into a felon and taken to prison etc 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 and so there are all these real examples in the past of abuse and in the present of abuse that we collected and we shared and we said it is this law that is guilty for all of this abuse to happen and so we need to so everyone was like oh i don't want to contribute to again right you got to make them look good like they're not saying no to so this was always ron paul's problem i felt hallowed be his name, right? Like, I don't want to say anything too bad about Dr. Paul, but one of the challenges was he was called Dr. No. And people don't like saying no to things. People want to say yes to stuff, especially if you're a politician. And so you got to find ways to say, you know, what can we say yes to? How can we look like we're achieving success and doing good and doing right by people? And if we're just going around, and I had to learn this too, you know, early in Liberta, I'm rambling here, let me end. Early in Libertas's, when we got started, it was always, that's a bad law. You shouldn't do that. And we went nowhere. We, we spouted off our opinion. but we did. And so we've had to learn that, okay, strategy comes from giving good solutions that are within that Overton window that makes sense, that are possible, that let the other people that we may not totally agree with feel like they are still you know protecting their turf or doing something good. And that's where we've been able to achieve a lot of success just because of the psychological and marketing and strategic types of things and less about, you know, I'm a student of the law. And I'm like, just, a student of economics. Yeah, it doesn't matter as much. I still remember one of the debates that Ron Paul did where they were asking like, you know, okay, you're going to go home from the debate and you're going to spend the weekend. What are you going to do at night? And he, everyone was like, oh, I'm going to watch the football game. Oh, I'm going to go hang out with my family. And he was 
you know, I'm going to go read economic books. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> Dr. Anyway, Paul. Obviously, he, we don't need to go down that tangent. The, this is why I'm posing these points. And this is what it means for you listeners in regards to what's going on right now in society. You know, we've just had this massive stimulus bill mm-hmm. this past. We've had, you know, some sweeping legislation as a result of COVID. And now, you know, Elizabeth Warren is starting to push forward some, you know, tax legislation that, you know, impacts audits, business disruption, you know, based on some funding for the IRS, like 10 times the funding or something like that. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is when we hear things on the surface, especially from a political sphere, most people take that at its word, at what is said. And very few people question it. But when they do question it, and especially for those that understand the principle behind it, it goes back to this idea of trying to push forward what you think is right by making other people wrong. And so the reason why I was going to the Tuttle Twins, then going to the success of Libertas, who's been able to bring forth legislative ideas to either help refine law or to remove law that infringed on personal liberties, the way in which it was done has been successful. And so looking at those who do understand what's going on and also those who you know want to be able to capitalize on the environment right now, yeah. right? And they don't realize that what is coming forth in these different legislations, these laws, is creating a precedent that is not going to end well because it's been tried before, Yeah, right? When you are able to solve a person's problems, when they are fully capable of solving it themselves, you're preventing them from learning a lesson. You're preventing them from really feeling rewarded by reliance on themselves, being mm-hmm. able to figure out their life, being able to accomplish something, especially in the face of hardship, and you're removing that, Yeah. Okay. And now you have set a precedent where you're helping all these people, right? Some of which really need desperate help, a lot of which don't need help, right? But what you're doing is you're rewarding behavior and creating more reinforcement, right, to their future behaviors and expectations from government. Same thing with business as you're introducing some tax legislation and those ideas. On the surface, it's like, oh, we should tax the rich because the wealth gap is you know, is so wide and it's not fair, right? So on the surface, there's compelling argument to people, but at the same time, what's being brought forth has so many unintended consequences based on history, what the consequences are. The idea is this is here. And I look at, you know, whether it's entrepreneurs, whether it's investors, whether it's those who just want to, they believe in certain principles and truths and want those to be understood by others. You have to use a different set of, I would say, tactics and behaviors, right? It's confronting it head on is just no longer the way to get something achieved in an easy way. You got to recognize the Elizabeth Warrens of the world don't care about the unintended consequences. And I dispute the idea that they're all unintended, right? Like we call them unintended consequences, but like, I feel like sometimes they're okay with those consequences. They anticipate them. They get it. They're not totally brain dead. And therefore, there's some intentionality there, you know, $15 minimum wage. Okay, it sounds good. It'll keep getting me reelected. And yeah, it may cause a whole bunch of teenagers to lose their jobs, but we'll just do another stimulus or we'll all do the Teenager Employment Act and like it'll just give us more work to do and more problems to solve. So I feel like sometimes it's unintentional. And that's the challenge is because 
you can talk economics all day with Elizabeth Warren or with AOC or whatever. You can have all the rational studies, statistics and everything else. That's not going to change anyone's mind. They've bought into this narrative, as you pointed out earlier. And they're emotionally attached. They are very emotionally attached. And we've cultivated a dependency mentality where people are increasingly looking to the government for the problem. As you point out, we've have kind of skewed the incentives. People are not feeling the consequences of their own decisions. They're being bailed out nonstop. They're being told, you know, we're from the government and we're here to help, which Ronald Reagan called the nine most terrifying words in the English language. And now even the Mitt Romneys of the world are literally saying, you know, hey, we're here from the government. We're here to help, which is very ironic and kind of funny to think what Ronald Reagan would be saying today. So that's the challenge we face is like, we can sit down and try and talk smart with all these people and give them all the data in the world. It's not going to move them. It's the narrative. It's the message. It's the emotion. And that's very hard to combat. Well, let's end with a couple of things. I know we're well into the interview and there's some good nuggets here. What would you say is behind your driving force? Like what's driving you? Why do you get up in the morning? What are you trying to accomplish with Libertas? What do you see that others may not see? Because we see the actions. We don't see the motivations. So I feel like I've been blessed with a certain set of skills that allows me to very, be very effective. I sound like Liam Neeson right there. Right? I know. <laughs> I have a certain I have a, set of skills. Yeah. I will find you <laughs> right. with those skills. <laughs> I'm good at what I do. And, you know, I, and so I'm, I'm kind of in an area of life, in an industry, in a role that allows me to be very effective. Now, now here's why I bring that up. Not to sound arrogant, although I probably often do. The, the reason why I bring that up is because... The biggest complaint I hear from people who, like you and I, care deeply about these ideas, probably many of your listeners have said this, well, I'm just one person, what can I do? I don't know how to get involved. I don't know where to start. I can't make a difference. I'm just going to go about my life. And so many people burn out, uh, don't even try, don't even start, don't know where to go. And, And so I feel like I'm in a position where I can do something about it. And as a result, I get so many messages, you know, our organization does of people saying, help me. And so here's why I bring all this up. Literally every day, I get messages from people who need help. And I'd say about a third of them are just absolute sob stories, especially so back when we were doing medical marijuana and just all the people who were suffering, like those stories were heart-wrenching and then more so meeting those people face-to-face and like seeing the injustice of government, that it wasn't just these abstract ideas that some lawmakers are tinkering around with and then they go back to their lives. and Like this is real and, and this really impacts people's lives. You know, if you raise the $15 minimum wage and you automate all these companies, automate these jobs and teenagers, like that causes real world problems for people just trying to get a start in life and get a leg up and find their way into the world. This impacts real people. And so I am in a position where I feel like there's just this deluge of messages to us of people sharing their problems. And so that really motivates me. Say what kind of gets me up in the morning. It's that I can't help all those people and I can't do everything, but for at least some of them, like I can do something. And I've done this long enough now for a decade now where I've seen the impact that my team has had on people's lives. And it's not theoretical. It's not like in the abstract out there that, yeah, maybe we help someone. Like I've been knee to knee with people who have just melted down in front of me about what our work means to them. And so anyone in my position would feel deeply motivated to say, Anyone who's done service knows how this feels, right? You go help the little old lady, you know, across the street or, you know, pull her weeds or anything like that. You feel good about yourself. You get that serotonin, whatever, right? Kicking in. And 
or is it uh, i don't remember which if the oxytocin oxytocin serotonin yeah 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 and so you know that you feel good you want to do it more and and so imagine having that opportunity every day to be and with the Tuttle twins just these parents reaching out like and so i feel like i'm on drugs all the time like good drugs where it's like i want to keep doing more of this and so i i want to like share the drugs with other people like other people need to feel these things too because there's a lot of problems and and increasingly so i think with all the mess that's going on lately and if you're in an area of life where you can do something about it, even for that one person, like maybe there's an organization in your area, maybe it has nothing to do with politics and economics. It's like people are struggling and they need jobs. Maybe it's working at the soup kitchen. Maybe it's donating to the you know food shelter, food pantry or whatever. I think it is going to collectively take so much more of us trying to solve problems and helping people out and showing them that the government is not the solution to the problem that private associations and voluntary charity and, and humanity coming together and not the state uh, through taxation. So it's just, it's good to be on good drugs. And I think a lot more people need that experience too. All I'm with a couple of things and love your thoughts on this. You look at just what the natural drives of human beings. I think it's been studied and, and, you know, iterated on for hundreds of years, but, you know, Maslow, I think created a, a really interesting construct as far as describing it in the hierarchy or the sequence right. of things you know, starting with physical well-being and then going into, you know, safety relationships, right? I think if you really look at the safety component and the physiology, I mean, that's kind of where government, you know, has been proven to be effective, right? Protecting the rights and the safety of, you know, individuals. But then going beyond that is when you get into relationships and going beyond that, you get into a self-esteem and then self-actualization. So I look at, you know, starting with self-esteem, I think people need to experience how, where they're relevant in the world. I think sometimes people get it from, you know, selling and or getting a good job or getting an A in school. Again, those those reinforcing chemicals that are happening in your body. And preventing that, I think, is very harmful. Right. And I think oftentimes when somebody achieves self-esteem is because they solve a problem themselves. Right. They go through a hard time and they are the resource that was used to overcome. Right. And robbing a person that of that prevents them from getting to this self-actualized phase, right? Where people seek to make a difference. I know most people on the podcast are in those two arenas, right? They're trying to achieve, right? They're trying to be independent. They're trying to make a difference and then getting into that self-actualized phase as well. And this is all, again, there's principles behind this that I think sometimes you know, we gloss over, right? This has been something that you can look back in history and books and stories and see evidence of all of this. But you look at, again, the role of government, you look at the role of laws. And I think people have wanted the easy way out and they're seeking the easy way out instead of having to, you know, experience what humans are meant to experience. I think right now it's just an, it's an interesting time, right? Where, whether it's technology whether it's government involvement where people don't have to do much to be alive, mm-hmm. right? There's obviously sustenance levels continue to, to come down to an extent. We have amazing technologies that allow for, you know, entertainment that Kings, you know, would have no, nowhere near the degree of entertainment right. that we have today, right. right? Having a good time, having fun, being able to get together, just the conveniences of, uh, of life. And so my point in bringing all this up is, you know, we're getting closer to this point where, people are going to want to seek meaning, right? They're trying to seek meaning in their life, whether it's the financial accomplishments that they're a part of uh, or whether it's them making a difference. And I look at, again, where 
government resides in the mix of things is mm-hmm. they're trying to facilitate that without people having to take responsibility for themselves. Yeah. And that's a slippery slope. And I would say something that we all should be paying attention to. And even though, like you said, we may not think we can make a difference, right? We're not going to be able to affect millions of people unless you're Connor Boyack <laughs> or someone that has a very you know popular podcast. Okay, but you can affect a neighbor. You can impact a neighbor. You can do and make 100%. a difference with you know a stranger at the coffee shop. You can so never write off right the experiences you have on a daily basis and your ability to impact and influence the life of somebody else. It could be you know I heard a story today with, with a kind of a professional speaker, but there was a thank you card he got from a very reputable person. And it changed his life. Hmm. Probably took 60 seconds to write that thank you card, but it changed that person's life. Hmm. I mean, really, there are moments that you know happen to us every single day where we can bring our best self to life. We can come and we can make a difference whether we believe it or not. And I think that's what people seek in the end. Yeah. So whether government is involved in that doesn't make it whether they're involved in all of our lives, you can still do that. But at the same time, it's like, you know, humanity has a purpose in, in my opinion, right? In my experience, where we're here to experience certain things. And when those things, those experiences are prevented from happening, right, it has consequence, negative consequence. I like that you brought up just the, the power of the one, the impact that one person can have. And you never know what that's going to be, which is the hard challenge. And so it's always this calculation of like, is this worth my time? And should I do this? And is it worth it? Oh, it's only one person. Um, I've had the good fortune of having a good relationship with Ron Paul um, in the past few years. And, and one time we were chatting and he says, you know, Connor, as I was winding down my presidential campaign, a lot of people were saying, what should I do? What, you know, like, what's the next step to continue this on? And Dr. Paul told me, he's like, I, I would tell everyone who asked, I have no clue. Like, <laughs> I don't know, you know, what your skills are and what opportunities you have. But but what Ron Paul, like he never got any laws changed and like, you know, he didn't have any success by that measure, but I wouldn't be doing, and I've told him this several times, I would not be doing at all what I'm doing without Ron Paul. It was, he, you know, the introduction to him who woke me up to free market economics and American history and all this kind of stuff that sent me down the path. And maybe I would have found some other way, but, uh, but I, I credit him with everything of, of, uh, being that person teaching these ideas and waking me up. And so he he throws it back at me. He's like, Connor, I'd never, if you would have asked me like, hey, what should I do, Dr. Paul? He's like, I never would have thought of starting a think tank or writing children's books. Like I never would have thought of that. And yet there you are doing all this good. And so the good that Ron Paul did, at least in my role, and he can claim credit for influencing certainly a lot of other people as well, is that has extended his legacy and his impact. And and it's something that I honestly think about often. It's like I'm re- writing all these books and all these kids are reading it. Who's the future, you know, Ron Paul or, you know, Thomas Jefferson or, you know, whatever that, but for my efforts would not have gotten onto their life path that they needed and we're uniquely suited to get on. And so some of us have larger soapboxes than others. Some of us can do more than others, but everyone can do something, as you point out. And it can be even just your neighbor. It can be starting a little book club, doing monthly service projects. I mean, just do good. And and that adds up in the aggregate. And even and who cares about the aggregate? It matters to the person that you do it to. And I think we need a lot more of it. And then you get to enjoy the the good drugs uh, that your, your, your brain gives you. So enjoy that. So Tuttle Twins you know, is, has impacted a lot of people. Obviously the last interview we did, there's a lot, a lot of, you know, listeners who bought books. 
um, you continue to come out with more. You have the the famous Harmon Brothers, you know, marketing videographers who are doing doing some things with the Tuttle Twins brand. It's really exciting. Yeah. So how can people connect with you, connect with the news that's going on in that regard? Yeah. And obviously the point in that is, you know, if you see an opportunity to gift a book, right, for a holiday or for a birthday or yeah. someone that you care about, right? Obviously these are these are things that have made a difference. You know, one how many million did you sell last year and how well, many total? So one one point three last year, which was more than all previous years combined. Last year was a big year of growth for us. So now we're just over two million total and it's crazy. We've got books for teens now, we've got books for toddlers, we've got curriculum, we're doing a cartoon. So anyways, TuttleTwins.com is where you can find everything. We're on all the social media platforms where we post updates and some of the behind the scenes stuff as well. You can find us there. If you want to look up our think tank, Libertas Institute, it's just Libertas.org. And we'd love to have you know everyone's support and keep talking to people and appreciate you having me on to share the good word. And Libertas is also nonprofit, right? So you accept donations, of course. Yeah, and we're working. I mean, we work in Utah, as you know, but but now we're scaling our work uh, to other states as well because we've had a lot of good success, and we don't want to, you know, be greedy and selfish and keep it here in Utah. So we're scaling uh, to other states, and so whatever state you're in, we'd love to be talking to folks about how we can help. Let's do it a podcast some other time about just some of the legislation you guys have been able to cool. bring forward and also other states being able to leverage that and bring that to their specific state. You know, Awesome. Sounds great. Okay, man. It was awesome to be in your office. Thank, you for, thank you for the gear. Thanks for coming. Thanks for the conversation. Absolutely. And uh, best of luck. We'll have you on next time. Thanks. Okay. Appreciate it. See you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.